This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, where we always give you news from an African perspective. We're broadcasting to you from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa. And please note that unfortunately our shortwave transmitter is currently down at the moment and uh, we'll notify you as soon as the situation has been resolved and uh, you can find us at www.channelafrica.co.za in the meantime my name is Samora Mangesi and with me in studio making sure that you remain informed on in all things African I am with Jwalani Tulo, Tracy Boomgaard and Musa Makura. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. The IFJ calls on the Gambian government to reverse the introduction of the new rules that require journalists to go through intelligence screening processes before acquiring accreditation. Also today marks World Autism Day and in economics, authorities in Sierra Leone have started implementing a one-month ban on fishing in the country's territorial waters. And lastly, in sport, there's still no information on the five Eritrean athletes that went missing ahead of Saturday's World Cross Country Championships in Denmark. But first, let's find out what is happening in the world of news. Here is Jwalani Tula. Thank you, Samara. Good afternoon. Hundreds of students have taken to the streets in dismissal of President Abdelaziz Bouteflika's promise to resign. They say the promise is a diversion and are demanding an overhaul of the country's political system. The ailing 82-year-old Bouteflika had been clinging to power despite weeks of protests that first erupted in February when he said he would seek a fifth term in power. On Monday, his office said the president will resign before April 28, the date marking the end of his current mandate. The Ebola outbreak in the DRC is spreading at its fastest rate since it was detected about eight months ago. This is according to a World Health Organization spokesperson, Christian Lidmeyer, is quoted by Reuters as saying that a total of 72 cases were reported last week, higher than the record 57 of the previous week. He says people are becoming infected without access to response measures. The current outbreak has killed more than 600 people and has infected more than a thousand others, making it the second largest ever recorded. Saudi Arabia has executed a Nigerian woman convicted of trafficking drugs. According to state media, the woman was executed along with two Pakistani men and a Yemeni man in in Islam's holiest city, Mecca. A total of 53 people have been executed in the kingdom so far this year. Saudi Arabia has resisted pressure from campaign groups to abolish the death penalty, saying it is a deterrent against crime. A retired South African Air Force Colonel George Rama Rimisa and the Reformed Church in the capital Pretoria have donated clothes and other supplies to survivors of Cyclone Idai in Zimbabwe. The cyclone hit Mozambique and northern parts of Zimbabwe and Malawi more than two weeks ago. Chipinge and Chimanimani are the most affected parts in Zimbabwe. Most people were left without necessities while scores were killed. The driver of the truck ferrying the supplies to Zimbabwe, Kennedy Mabika, says it will bring some relief to the survivors. The situation is very bad because people are saying they don't have clothing, they don't have shelters, so they are struggling with their lives. So I think the, the clothes is going to help them because they are suffering, they don't have anything to wear. All the stuff has been washed away with the rains. And finally, the party of Turkey's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan is formally contesting the results of Sunday's local election in every district of the country's biggest city, Istanbul. It lost control of several key areas in the polls, including the capital, Ankara. The BBC's Mark Lowen has the story. President Erdogan, it seems, isn't quite ready to let go of his own backyard, his AK party officially contesting results in the city where he was born and was once mayor. The election board said the opposition CHP candidate won Istanbul by around 25,000 votes, but the governing party has complained of irregularities and will challenge them in every district. Victory posters for the government have gone up on billboards in Istanbul, which the opposition says is an attempt to impose its position and steal the result. Losing major cities is a significant blow to the president, breaking his image of invincibility. Headlines at 5.30 for Channel Africa. I'm Cholani Tulo.
This is Africa Digest. All right, the time is now 17.05. Let's kick it off by going to Gambia, where the International Federation of Journalists and Affiliation of the Gambian Press Union has called on the Gambian government to reverse the introduction of the new rules that require journalists to go through screening processes by the, in, the, by the National Intelligence Agency before acquiring accreditation from the State House. The organization says the rules are infringing on the rights of journalists to report freely without any form of surveillance. The State House has last week notified the journalists who have recently applied for accreditation from the State House that they will be called by agents of the National Intelligence Agency to be screened. West Africa Director at the International Federation of Journalists, Louis Tomasi, says the new rules are worrying. As journalists, we are very much concerned about the institution that is involved in the selection process for accreditation because uh, this is an institution that have over the years intimidated journalists and had tortured journalists with impunity. Now, this is the institution that have tortured our comrades like Musa Sidi Khan, Lamin Fati, Lamin Cham, as, as well as Alaji Job and uh, even, even, even the Honorable Madi Sise. So if you are subjecting journalists, it is definitely yeah. unacceptable. What is it uh, that you have a problem with? Is it the surveillance that you have a problem with or the whole selection process? No, we do not have a problem with accreditation. Like you said, it is done everywhere. But I have not, I have not seen any country where accreditation is being done by an intelligence a, intelligent agency, most especially a notorious intelligent agency. Now, what we are saying is there can be an accreditation process, no problem about that, but let it be done through the Ministry of Information. There's a Ministry of Information where a former comrade a former journalist is currently the minister so they can go they can go through they can go through the ministry of information for 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 the accreditation process and we don't have any problems with that but then subjecting journalists to an intelligent agency that have been notorious for intimidating journalists that is what is unacceptable now do you think uh, this decision uh, will be overturned absolutely absolutely as we are speaking now i received information very early this morning that uh, the the director of press and public relations at the at the presidency have actually met with uh, members of the executive of the gambia press union the gpu now the government says uh, these new rules are necessary in order to minimize unfounded rumors and create greater awareness uh, how do you respond to this yeah but you know such kind of a selective process are not are normally not fair because there will be people with competence there will be independent journalists who will not actually have access to 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 the presidency now in my view journalists who are competent to cover the president must be given accreditation or otherwise the director of press and public relations should have developed or should have definitely they have in their possession the the names of all the media houses that are available in the country it's a small country we are talking about a very small country and uh, they should have been able to write letters to all of these media houses and ask them to nominate one person who will cover the presidency and then that is the person that you will you will accredit to be able to to be able to go to the functions at the at the presidency at any moment in time so so, so this is this is what i believe but then since they are opening their doors and asking people to, to go and register or to go and fill the forms at the press. Let me say, if you are very critical against the presidency, will there be any reason for them to, to revoke your accreditation? This is the type of fear I have when you, when, when you develop such, mecha- such mechanisms for, for coverage. Do you think uh, Adama Barrow is taking media freedom seriously? Yeah, yes, I think I think he is taking media freedom seriously. There are certain laws that we expected that he should have repealed by, by now, which are which are still in existence. By this time, I was expecting, I as a professional, I was expecting that we would have passed already a, a freedom of information. Uh, legislation in the Gambia, but yes, to be done. I would say the president respects media freedom, but then what has happened for the past two years is there are certain things that have not been taken seriously. There, there have been some false steps in certain areas of the media, which I think needs to be fast, fast track if we are to make any improvement from the former regime. 
And that was Louis Tomasi, West Africa Director at the International Federation of Journalists on the line from Kinshasa in the Democratic Republic of Congo, talking to Kumbelo Monzelele. South Africans are bracing themselves for the fuel increase. At midnight, the price of 95-octane petrol will increase by 1 rand 31 cents a litre in inland provinces, while motorists on the coast will have to fork out 1 rand 26 cents more. 93-octane unleaded increases by 1 rand 34 cents a litre uh, for inland regions and is up by 1 rand 29 cents at the coast. Diesel will increase by at least 82 cents a litre. Other increases that kick in this month include that of electricity. More from Chief Economist at Econometrics, Dr. Azar Jamin. Well, I think it's finding itself in the same situation that many other countries in the world are doing uh, in the wake of the rebound in oil prices. One must remember that oil prices hit a peak of $86 a barrel in September last year, then fell all the way to $50 a barrel in December. That enabled low domestic fuel prices to come tumbling down in December and January. But since then, oil prices have rebounded to uh, virtually $70 a barrel from $50 a barrel. That's a hefty uh, rebound. And on top of that, the rand uh, has lost a little bit of ground against the uh, dollar over this period of time. So the uh, effects of the fuel levy increase of 15 cents per litre and the road accident fund levy of 5 cents per litre are really quite minor in uh, effects in relation to the impact of the recovery in international oil prices. And I'm sure the same thing is happening in to many other countries in the world. Now, how does this uh, latest increase, uh, Doctor, um, affect uh, the South African economy? And do you think um, we are prepared for this uh, hefty hike at this time? You've got to bear in mind that the price of fuel rising is negative, obviously, for consumer spending because uh, people have to spend that much more on fuel and have less to spend on everything else. But at the same time, you need to also bear in mind that the current price of, or the new higher price of fuel uh, tomorrow will still be uh, quite a bit lower than it, uh, the fuel price that prevailed in between October and December last year. So, uh, you know, one needs to see it in the correct perspective. And uh, do you think the, the snowballing effect of the increase uh, might prove to be a challenge um, with the current economic climate? I don't think that there will necessarily be a snowballing impact. The very fact that uh, fuel prices came tumbling down in December and January and now are uh, basically going up off a very low base uh, implies that there need not really be a snowballing effect because uh, if you were going to have a snowballing effect, it would have happened already back in uh, December and uh, it didn't seem to happen at the time. Um, When we look at... uh you know, the, the average South African, will they be able to survive with their current income on looking at these increases, of course, that have kicked in um, since the first of, the, of this new month? Well, if you mean by survive that people won't have enough food to stay alive, uh, no, this is really not such mm. a big issue to mm-hmm. actually lead to such a situation. Mm. Uh, but uh, clearly, uh, it will not help... Uh, 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 supports consumer spending and economic growth. Are we likely to see more increases in the near future, Doctor? Unfortunately, uh, you know, the latest uh, price increase was based on the oil price going up from uh, about $60 to $66 a barrel during the course of March. And since then, in the first few days of April, we've seen it rising still further to $70 a barrel. Uh, against this, fortunately, uh, the decision by Moody's to not to down, uh, <coughs> basically not to take a decision on whether to downgrade us or not, <coughs> has helped to uh, see the rand appreciating, and that will help to mitigate slightly the impact of the further rise in oil prices. But you know, going up from sixty-six to seventy dollars a barrel is uh, a hefty increase and uh, I think there's every chance if oil prices remain at these levels that we will see a further increase uh, in fuel prices next month, unfortunately. And that was Dr. Azar Jamin, Chief Economist at Econometrics, on the line talking to Zikona Miso.
Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yawundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. In Lesotho. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. South Africa's cash-strapped power utility ESCOM has received a 180 million U.S. dollar uh, cash injection from the BRICS New Development Bank, otherwise known as NDB, to fund the integration of renewable energy into the grid and to augment transmission projects. The loan, which was signed at the NDB's fourth annual meeting in Cape Town, will provide ESCOM with a sovereign guarantee for the projects. The bank, which is headquartered in China, was launched four years ago to finance infrastructure projects and the five BRICS nations, which are Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa, uh, which are its shareholders. Its listing on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange is also imminent as the bank tries to raise money through the issuing of local currency bonds. To discuss this further, we are joined on the line by Leslie Marsdorp, the Chief Financial Officer of the New Development Bank. Mr. Marsdorp, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Can you talk to us about the terms and conditions of the ESCOM loan agreement? So the New Development Bank, as you know, uh, is owned by the five BRICS uh, countries, and therefore we have these five sovereign uh, shareholders. Um, The loan to ESCOM is underpinned by a sovereign guarantee, which means that ultimately uh, uh, the New Development Bank is not taking ESCOM risk as such. We're taking South Africa uh, sovereign risk because uh, a sovereign guarantee means that uh, ultimately the government uh, stands behind that uh, loan. We also engage in, in uh, non-sovereign loans. In other words, for example, we uh, concluded a loan last year to Transnet, which is to Transnet without a uh, government guarantee. So the bank has these two lending windows, uh, if you like. In this particular instance, I mean, as you know, ESCOM is an, an institution that is very critical uh, to the South African economy. It's an enterprise that, if you like, is too big to fail. Uh, you know, we as a bank, together with other development finance institutions, we want to be part of a plan to a, a plan to get ESCOM towards medium long-term financial sustainability. So this is only one component of various initiatives over the next, uh, over the next number of months and years to come uh, to ensure that ESCOM is able to deliver on its uh, mandate whilst they undergo this restructuring program that, that President Ramaphosa has announced, um, breaking up ESCOM into these various uh, components of generation, uh, transmission, and uh, distribution. But the loan uh, specifically is an injection of $180 million to uh, beef up the uh, capital uh, for the transmission network so that the independent power producers, the renewable energy power producers, can be connected to the, the ESCOM uh, grid. Now, it's also said that the applications uh, to list the bank on the JSE are complete. How significant is this move to list the bank on the JSE? Yeah. So what we are listing on the JSE is a bond instrument. It's not the bank as such. So, so the bank is, uh, as you correctly pointed out in your earlier remarks, uh, headquartered in Shanghai. We are a multilateral bank. In other words, we're not sort of a registered bank in China. As such, we we sort of uh, um, owned by these uh, five countries in the same way that the Africa Development Bank or the World Bank, etc., uh, operates. Mm-hmm. So we are a public institution owned by by uh, governments and ultimately by uh, all of us as, as taxpayers. Now, when the bank conducts its activities, we have capital that is injected from the uh, shareholder, but in addition, we raise funding through the debt capital markets. So what we do typically is that these banks issue uh, debt on the international markets. We raise bonds in either US dollars or Euro or Japanese yen, etc. Um, what we also do is raise funding in domestic uh, local currencies. So in South Africa, we intend to fund some of our loans, our activities in uh, South Africa with RAND as opposed to US dollars. And the best way to, to, to do that effectively is to raise 
funding on in the domestic market by issuing debt on the local uh, stock exchange. So we will uh, um, we have registered a program which has now been approved by the Johannesburg Stock Exchange uh, to raise up to 10 billion South African rand. Um, and we are hoping that during the, the course of the remaining part of this year, we will do the first uh, issuance, the first bond issuance under that uh, program. The advantage of this is to, to close off. The advantage is that when we provide funding in local currency, I mean, ESCOM, as you know, uh, or take PCTA or take any of these enterprises, their revenues uh, are typically in local currency, in rand. So if your loan is also in, in, in rand, there's a match between the asset and the, and the liability. Uh, so you're not exposed to exchange rate fluctuations. Because if I give you a loan in US dollars and your currency depreciates as the rand has, has depreciated over the last uh, couple of years, for example, uh, your, your payments, uh, ultimately the effective cost of that funding is more because of the, of the currency uh, uh, depreciation. So that's why we want to raise uh, RAND uh, uh, debt in the South African market. And the bank has also started uh, getting the ball rolling on applying for local currency bond insurances in Brazil and India. When will that happen? Yeah. So we have already successfully done two bond issuances in China. We registered uh, most recently a few weeks ago um, a 10 billion renminbi program in China. That's about 1.5 billion dollar equivalent. Um, and we did the first issuance under that program on the 25th of uh, February. Um, so we will become a regular issuer uh, in that uh, market. That was the second issue uh, bond issue in China. We are now also in the process. I just returned from Moscow uh, um, beginning of March where we also uh, applied for to the uh, um, Russian Central Bank to register a ruble bond uh, program. Uh, we started already towards the end of last year in India. India has both a domestic rupee market as well as an offshore called masala bond market. We, 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 we intend to also tap into the um, Indian market. So in terms of sequencing, uh, um, China was first. South Africa now would be uh, second. Um, and the third one is likely going to be um, either uh, Russia or, or, or India. But we intend to tap into the debt capital markets of all of the BRICS nations. And uh, lastly, uh, CFO, according to the Finance Secretary of India, uh, who was also at the meeting in Cape Town, it is time for the BRICS group of countries to expand its membership. What impact will the, exp- uh, the expansion of BRICS membership have on the bank? So the New Development Bank was set up uh, in 2014 when the Articles of Agreement were signed. 2015, we opened our doors uh, June. But it was always, as you can see from the articles, uh, which is a public document, um, the bank was always intended to be a global uh, institution. So the aim was always to you know, create the institution with, with BRICS at its core and over time um, expand um, uh, as the bank evolves. We believe that once the bank has solid foundations, we will then be able to bring on board new uh, members. Um, so the, the process, the sequencing, which countries will join, how fast, all of those modalities will still be worked out and we will be given guidance by our shareholders and our board of uh, governors uh, on that. But what it will result into is BRICS countries will reduce their equity in the bank. So, for example, at the moment, South Africa has a 20% stake in the bank. India, China, Brazil, all of them have 20% stake. That will be uh, diluted to 11% each. So the BRICS countries will effectively still have control of the bank because they'll own 55%, uh, the five 11s together. And then the remaining 45% will be split into two components. The one component is a 25% stake that will go to other emerging markets in developing countries. So, for example, in Africa, you could have you know, Mozambique, Kenya, Tanzania, Algeria, Nigeria, and these countries can apply to join. Mm-hmm. That will be under that block of 25%. And then the final 20, 20% will be uh, allocated for developed uh, industrialized countries, or as we call them, non-borrowing members. So these could be European countries or Japan, South Korea, the, these types of countries who are still active in the multilateral banking world, but they don't typically borrow. Uh, they um, are members of, of, of the World Bank, of the International Finance Corporation, mm. and all these others, but they are non-borrowing members. So so that's how the structure will look like once we have graduated. But we are still a young and new institution. This process will take time, but the, the process is certainly kicked off. 
to begin that path towards expanding beyond beyond BRICS. All right. Thank you very much, Mr. Mazdorp, for joining us on the Thanks line and letting me. us know. Uh, that was Leslie Mazdorp, Vice President and Chief Financial Officer of the New Development Bank. Uh, but right now the time is 17.25 Central African time. You are still listening to Africa Digest. Overcrowded displacement camps coupled with a lack of basic sanitation facilities and hygiene will cause another cholera outbreak in northeast Nigeria if action is not taken now to prevent it. This is a warning by the Norwegian Refugee Council. A record high number of 10,000 cases of cholera was recorded in northeast Nigeria last year with more than 175 registered deaths. Hilda Jorgensen is the advocacy manager in Nigeria for the NRC. The reason why we warn of this cholera outbreak now is that we know that the rain season is just two months away. And based on experience from the last 10 years, we know that by the outbreak of the rain, there will be uh, cholera outbreaks. And where we see uh, the areas that are worst hit uh, are the displacement camps where people are living very crowded, where they don't have enough facilities, they don't have uh, toilets, they don't have proper shelters. Uh, and what worries us more this year than else uh, than last year is that um, last year we saw 10,000 cases of cholera, uh, and this year the displacement have increased with more than 100,000 people. So the conditions were bad last year, but it's even worse this year. So Nigeria is a country prone to cholera outbreaks. Yes, uh, this is the northeastern part. Uh, and we say there are approximately 1.8 or 1.9 million people that are refugees in their own country in this area. Uh, and at least half a million of them are living in camps that are severely overcrowded. So they sleep on the ground uh, under the open sky, many of them. They don't have the toilets and uh, on this ground where they sleep, where they live, uh, they are also cooking their food, uh, and when and cholera is a waterborne disease, meaning that with the rain, and they all live on top of each other like that, uh, that, that creates really high risk for cholera. Now, what's being done in the country to prevent a cholera outbreak, especially in those areas most at risk? Are there any cholera preventive measures, such as vaccination campaigns, perhaps? There were some uh, initiatives started last year with cholera vaccines, and there are organizations and uh, health authorities that do something. But what is done is way too little. And we also see it among the humanitarian response that the uh, the focus on health and sanitation facilities is very low compared to other sectors. So we are basically calling on everybody to ramp up the work and the focus on that right now because we need to curb or prevent the outbreak that we know is coming instead of only focus on it after it hits us. And what is your organization doing, the Norwegian Refugee Council? And my organization also has some wash uh, activities. Uh, that's what we call it. It's focusing on water, sanitation, and hygiene. Uh, but also in my own organization, we see that we have a challenge in getting enough funding for the activities. However, there's another problem also with the whole response, and that is even if we have the funding, uh, to provide these facilities. Uh, in many of the camps, they are so overcrowded, there's actually no space even to build toilets there or to build shelters. So in addition to more funding, they also need more land in order to decongest so many of these camps and build the facilities that they need. And that was Hilda Jorgensen, Advocacy Manager in Nigeria for the Norwegian Refugee Council on the line from Abuja talking to Jane Rabotata. Abari etise mache mingabo baoni kedu mbote ndemne bonsoir join me Richard Mwamba for a music show on Channel Africa called Africa in Song every Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time Africa in Song, Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African Time.
17.30 Central African time. It's time for us to cross on over to the news desk and get our latest news headlines from Jualani Tulo. Thank you, Samora. Making headlines, hundreds of students have taken to the streets in dismissal of President Abdulaziz Bouteflika's promise to resign in Algeria. The Ebola outbreak in the DRC is spreading at its fastest rate since it was detected about eight months ago. And finally, the party of Turkey's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan is formally contesting the results of Sunday's local election in every district in the country's biggest city, Istanbul. For Channel Africa, I'm Chulani Tulo. While South Africa has positive innovations to improve health outcomes and empower populations, more could be done to bridge digital gaps and provide quality resources. This is the view of Vanessa Carter, a Stanford University Medicine XE patient scholar, who says digital technology will be the key in ensuring the the sustainability of future healthcare provision. With scores of users worldwide, the social media phenomenon has taken the world by storm. This digital revolution has unlocked enormous opportunities for the creation of online communities for large-scale engagement uh, around often complex topics like the management of health conditions. Enter the e-patient, a term which refers to individuals who are proactive in their health and healthcare decisions. Carter joins us on the line to shed some light on the issue. Thank you very much for joining us, Vanessa. Hi, Samara. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. How are you? Good. Good. Thank you. So let's talk about the e-patient. How would you describe the term e-patient and is this a new phenomenon? Well, no, you know, it's been it's been something that's been emerging for a very long time. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, back in the 1990s, when the internet was first opened to the, the public, um, we first referred to it as actually a cyberchondriac. Um, okay. You know, when patients suddenly had access to information online, and, you know, it, there was a very big disruption in healthcare back then. But as technology has improved, and, you know, as patients have improved using technology, uh, we have started moving towards this new term, which is called an e-patient. Um, you know, although there is still a very long way to go, uh, this is the this is the vision of um, you know the future of, of 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 an empowered patient, an engaged electronic patient, if you, if you will. How reliable is most most health-related information found on the internet? I mean, we do know that a lot of people nowadays. Uh, I liked the term that you that you used, which you you called the. Um, uh, what what was the one with the chondriac? Uh, cyberchondriac. The cyberchondriac. <laughs> I mean, you, you you have a little pimple on your face, and the first thing you do is you head on over to Google or to WebMD to find out what it's about. And, uh, you know, uh, and the next thing you're getting a whole list of things all the way from uh, it could just be a, a, a slight rash to possibly HIV. How reliable is, uh, you know, most of this information that is found on the Internet? You know, so, so so this is the thing. I mean, you know, there is just so much fake news on the internet, and this is obvious. This is, you know, this is also why the cyberchondriac, um, you know, is, is the, the word is there. It's actually found in the Oxford Dictionary. So, but as we move towards digital health, um, the, that kind of data, the data sources will become more dynamic. In other words, it won't just be the internet that we're getting our data and information from anymore. It'll be mobile applications, wearables, you know, um, you name it. So, 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 um, so we need to, you know, if we're really going to move towards a, a positive um, e-health system, we need to look at how information can be, um, you know, quality orientated to to try and move towards an e-patient movement rather than the cyberchondriac of the past. And how have online resources and engagement, more especially, evolved over the years to empower patients? Well, um, you know, we, we've already started as we start moving towards what we call web version 3.0, the Internet of Things, started mm-hmm. building digital platforms that focus on information that is curated in one central place. Um, so in other words, uh, you know, you get websites like migraine, speakyourmigraine.com, which is a development by Novartis, a pharmaceutical company, working together with, ph- with patient organizations mm-hmm. to, uh, to develop a platform, social media platform, that could empower patients rather than them depending on, 
um, outside sources. Although we'll never get rid of that. We'll never get rid of the Twitters and the, 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 the Facebooks and that sort of thing because those are free resources for patients. Yes. But, um, but I think at the same time, you know, we, we could... Um, in, you know, educate patients better about the, those types of resources that are being built at the moment, um, which I'm mentioning now, you know, that are more reliable. And how involved has the South African government been in driving the use of digital technology to improve the health of its citizens? Oh, yeah, I don't think enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've only just starting to emerge with these, you know, start, starting to talk about these things. Um, I've been in it for a few years, and uh, you know, I've been so I've been following developed countries. Um, you know, to the point where, like for example, the NHS is already starting to build libraries with uh, mobile applications that are recommended for patients or digital platforms that are recommended for patients, which mm. we are very far from in, in developing countries. Um, I mean, in South Africa alone, we still have to get our websites up and going for provincial hospitals. Um, you know, we, we issues, for example, if you're a patient and you want to make an appointment or you want to see if their medicine stock out, why travel all the way to the, the public hospital to ask that question when we have these technological, um, this technology at our fingertips, if you know what I'm saying, and more than half the population online already. And what about the involvement of patients in this digital health transformation? How important is it? And is it uh, happening at a fast enough pace? No. Not in, no, no. I mean, not, not only locally, but I mean, look, globally, they, they are... Um, ahead of us. They're promoting patient participation. And this is really where South Africa and Africa as a whole need to look at the whole situation because when we start digitizing the healthcare systems, patients are going to be very central to collecting data on a daily basis. Mm. And they need to understand how important their participation is, you know, to, to curate, to collect quality data. And what that means, not only to the to the health system as a whole, but to their own management of their health. And what do you think will be the most challenging thing about using technology to find solutions to improve the way people access and manage healthcare? There's there's so many of them. Um, you know, the digital divides are, are a huge issue. Um, for example, access to ICTs, um, cost of ICTs, cost of mm. data. We all know the data must fall. Uh, you know, in South Africa, we just had this big movement now. Yes. That you know that needs to be more affordable. And it doesn't just you know when we talk about the, the cost of data, how does it affect healthcare for every citizen? So if 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 the for example, if the patient with a antibiotic resistant infection doesn't get access to to healthcare online. How does that affect the next person? Because that's an infectious disease. So mm. It's a community issue. Um, you know, so, um, so yes, it's that. And obviously literacy and cultural divides. And, but there's also a lot of technology that can break those, divides, those barriers. Um, you know, the type of design we do, disability is a huge problem as well. Um, you know, the blind, the deaf, um, I mean, I'm partially blind, so I understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, so it, it really comes down to, at the end, I think, as well with, uh, you know, designing technologies that are patient-centered, user-centered, actually. Um, you know, user-centered for, for everyone that's using them. All right, Vanessa, thank you very much for joining us on the line and letting us know about uh, the new phenomenon, which is the e-patient and how it's going to revolutionize healthcare all around the world and more especially here in South Africa. Thanks. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. That was and Vanessa. don't forget to join. Well, I'll be at the Africa Health Conference on the 29th of May. So, yeah, I'll be speaking about this as well. So you'll be on at the? At the uh, Africa Health Conference in Johannesburg, 29th of May. 29th of May, Africa Health Conference. All right. Uh, thank you very much, Vanessa, for joining us on the line. That was Vanessa Carter, a Stanford University Medicine ex-e-patient scholar. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa.
Medical experts say access to early screening, treatment and education can pave the way for a better quality of life for children and adults with autism spectrum disorder. However, a lack of awareness, trained professionals and support limits uh, uh, support limits this in especially lower income communities in South Africa. Uh, moving on to Africa as well as the world, actually. Attention is on this development disorder today as the global health community marks World Autism Day today. The day aims to increase understanding and acceptance of those who are affected by the disorder and also foster worldwide support for them. More from Antoinette Bruce Alexander, who is the Regional Development Officer for Autism South Africa in the Eastern Cape Province. We are not sure yet as in medically what causes autism. Mm, mm. There is still research worldwide to try and find the causes. We do know, however, that there is a genetic link somewhere, but they actually have not found out what causes it. Therefore, because we don't know what causes it, it's not curable. So unfortunately, with the people living with autism and the families and communities, this condition is going to be there until the person dies of natural causes one day when they are a ripe old age like anyone else. So the cure is not there because we don't know what causes it. But what autism in a nutshell is, it's a neurodevelopmental disorder. Mm. It's not a disease, therefore we can't medicate it like a normal disease, any other diseases. We find the basis for autism in the way that the people functionally or not communicates and has their speech and language or is delayed in speech and language communication with other people. We find difficulties in the ability to socially interact with other people, form bonds, form friendships. They prefer to be alone. Therefore, you will find our people mainly, if it's a young child, playing with their toys in a group but mainly alone by themselves. They have difficulty in the behaviors that they show other people, the rigid routines and patterns of behavior that they exhibit as well. And then also sensory problems. In all eight their senses, they have problems either being hypersensitive or hyposensitive, which makes their daily living and stimulation around them very challenging. And all of these Difficulties surrounding the problem of autism makes their daily life Mm. very difficult for themselves to interact with people, to just make sense of spoken language and what is being asked and required from them daily. Now, you've already highlighted, um, I mean, one of the major factors here, which is that there is no specific medication for autism itself. You can't medicate it. But, I mean, how does one then manage their condition? And what is your organization doing in terms of, of assisting where there are many gaps? We have to look at the child because every child is so individual and so unique. So we do do a screening and assessment of an individual child. We will then work out a management program and a program according to what the child's specific needs are. Therefore, it's very labor-intensive and therapy, all the children need therapy. Let's not even go there. The therapy is the thing that will assist the child, the parent, the community, how to work with the child. But it only comes after a long process of screening and evaluation of the child and their needs. What the organization itself offers is we want to be there for everyone who would like to get more information on autism. We distribute factual information, not some suck. We do hands-on autism training for professionals, for specialists. We also train parents on how to work with their children. We provide the counseling for the parents and the community after the child is diagnosed. We distribute information, brochures, flyers, pamphlets. The regional development offices for Autism South Africa is in every single province, except for Western Cape, where we've got a brilliant organization, Autism Western Cape, that Mm -hmm. is handling that side of um, affairs, but the whole of South Africa, there is a regional development officer. We take the information to the people. Yeah, yeah. We don't just rely on the head office in Johannesburg to distribute all the information anymore. We do all the training that is In all your different um, yeah, stations. In, in language, in at home level, mm. there where the help is needed, there we go. We also advocate for our people, Mm. their neurodiversity, their needs, so that our people are included, not just from basic assessment and diagnosis, but also getting them into school, getting them into programs, getting them 
assisted by social development department in terms of grant And that was Antoinette Bruce Alexander, Regional Development Officer for Autism South Africa in the Eastern Cape Province, speaking to Zikona Me. So it is just shy of 17.45 Central African time. And uh, just before we head on over to the Economics News, where we will be finding out a little bit more about the authorities in Sierra Leone who have started implementing a one-month ban on fishing in the country's territorial waters. I just want to remind you that you can send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or send us a WhatsApp to plus two seven seven six. 63003327 or tweet us at channel africa 1 This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Nam Kwenye line ya simu hivi sasa najiunga moja kwa moja. Farafina. Farafina. Terre du Soleil. Kia makande embalelwa kina Miriam. Está na companhia do serviço em língua portuguesa do canal África, a voz de africana que transmite a partir dos seus estudos centrais de Auckland Park, cidade de Johannesburg, África do Sul. Sochitika, mu África! Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. All right, Amanda Machaka is in the building. She's here to let us know what is happening with our money. It's time for the Economics News. Thank you, Samora. Good evening. Economists say the decision by rating agency Moody's to maintain South Africa's investment grade has brought more certainty in the local economy. Moody's said that South Africa's credit rating was still the lowest of investment grade, but with a stable outlook. Moody's is the last of the big three ratings agencies to give South Africa an investment grade rating. Moody's expects South Africa's credit profile to remain in line with those of uh, BAA3 rated sovereigns despite lower economic growth. Economic commentator Azar Jamin says the country's investment grade is secured for now. It affirms now for definite that there is not going to be a change in the outlook, which in turn means it will be at least another year probably before uh, there's any chance of a credit rating downgrade. And in Moody's case, that's very important because such a downgrade would have taken us down from investment grade to junk status. And by uh, the rules of the game, South Africa would then be compelled to uh, see its bonds falling out of the World Government Bond Index. Under those circumstances now, the RAND is likely to be under slightly less pressure South Africa's Public Enterprises Minister Praveen Godan and Chairperson of the ESCOM Board Jabu Mabuza are expected to brief the media on the state of the country's electricity supply on Wednesday. This follows a previous joint briefing about two weeks ago where Godan said at the time that they would know more about the problems facing the power utility following a technical review of the power plants which would take between 10 to 14 days. At the time, South Africa was in the midst of rolling blackouts The power shortage was so severe that ESCOM implemented several days of Stage 4 load shedding as well as Stage 2 during the night. The embattled power utility said then that the power supply had been further compromised by Cyclone Idai in Mozambique. Authorities in Sierra Leone have started implementing a one-month ban on fishing in the country's territorial waters in addition to halting of exports by major fishing companies in a bid to show up stocks. The government also decreed an April 1 to 30 halt to exports by major fishing companies to protect fish stock from depletion. The West African states of Mauritania, Senegal, the Gambia, Guinea-Bissau, Guinea and Sierra Leone lost about 2.3 billion U.S. dollars a year from 2010 
to 2016 due to illegal and undeclared fishing, according to the Greenpeace Environmental Group. Many coastal communities in Sierra Leone depend on fishing for food and their livelihood. And British parliamentarians are working on draft legislation that will commit to the Prime Minister Theresa May to asking the European Union to rather for more time to settle Brexit. The UK is due to leave the bloc at the end of next week. MPs yesterday failed to agree on other four alternatives to May's rejected deal. The EU's chief Brexit negotiator Michael Bernier says it is becoming likely by the day that Britain will leave without an agreement. The PBC's Adam Fleming reports. The EU chief negotiator said the UK had three options. Pass the deal and delay Brexit for a few weeks to sort out the necessary legislation. Leave the EU without a deal or ask the EU for a longer extension to the process. That would require the UK to take part in the elections for the European Parliament in May. Michel Barnier also said it came with political costs for the European Union and wasn't universally popular with European businesses who fear prolonged uncertainty. In our financial indicators, the US dollar is trading at 359.01, Nature and Naira, 10.52, Botswana Pula, 100 Kenyan shilling, 11 cents, and 12.10 Zambian kwacha. The US dollar is also trading at 76 pence to the British pound and 89 cents to the euro. In commodities, gold is at $1,286, platinum $848 per ounce, while the price of plain crude oil is $69.13 a barrel. And that's how it's looking at this hour. All right, let's gr- let's dribble across to the sports desk and blow those vuvuzelas. Here's Musa Budimakora with your, your sports news. Good evening, sports fans. We'll start with this story. There is still no information on the five Eurotrain athletes who went missing ahead of Saturday's World Cross Country Championships in Denmark. The athletes are suspected to seek refugee status. Now Channel Africa's Gershom Nyati has the story. The athletes, three senior female runners and two junior men, disappeared from a hotel where they stayed in Aarhus. They left their passports behind with team coach Dawiti Mebratu. The visas for the athletes will expire midnight on Monday, meaning they will be considered illegal immigrants on Tuesday onward. Eritrea is considered by the United Nations as a failed state and therefore the five athletes may not be forced to return to their country of origin due to political reasons. Six other Eritrean runners, including star runner Aaron Kifile, competed in the competition. Kifile nearly met a podium place, finishing fourth position in the men's senior cross-country event. Four-time African Footballer of the Year, Yaya Torres, says football authorities should be more proactive when it comes to racism. Now, the former Cote d'Ivoire national men's team player, who also stand for Barcelona and Manchester City, says football governing bodies only reacted once incidents had already occurred, as in the case of the racist chanting during England's Euro 2020 qualifier in Montenegro last week. Now, Montenegro fans directed their chants at several England players, including defender Danny Rose as well as striker Raheem Sterling. Now, Torre, who was speaking on Sunday after receiving an award from Football Agents Racism, um, Football Against Racism in Europe, praised his former Manchester City teammate Sterling for his behaviour during that match. Well, back home, South Africa's national women's football team, that is Banyana Banyana, played Jamaica in their final last home international friendly match before jetting off to the World Cup. The clash between Banyana Banyana as well as the reggae girls is scheduled for the Moses Mabida Stadium in the KwaZulu-Natal province on Sunday afternoon. A veteran Banyana Banyana player Nokomato says the team wants to give the home fans a win before the World Showpiece.
We have to do well, so we're playing, playing home. It's the last match at home, so we just have to go there and and play and give our fans what they needed, which is, is a win. We don't know much about Jamaica, but what I've realized every time when you watch the athletics, the Jamaican, they can run. I think we're expecting a tough a tough one, the, the, the speedy strikers. So I think, yeah, we just have to be prepared and do our homework thoroughly so that we can know their strengths and their weaknesses before we we take on them so so that we can we can cope well, that match gets underway 3 p.m. Central African time on Sunday afternoon. Banyana Banyana will then travel to the USA in May where they will play the world champions. That is the USA in a friendly match before jetting off to France for the FIFA Women's World Cup. Now to rugby news, Stormers wing Sabelo Sinatla and utility forwards Johan Dutoy and Ernst van Ryan are flying out to join the rest of their teammates currently on tour in Australia. Now the Stormers are in Brisbane preparing to face off with their Australian counterparts Queensland Reds on Friday in a Super Rugby match. The South African club will be without Peter Spieth Dutoy, Ibn Itzbeth, as well as Dan Duplessis for the rest of the season. And finally, in tennis news, Roger Federer says he is not very confident going into the clay, season, the, court, um, the clay court season, although his Miami Open success has taken the pressure off him. Now, Federer has skipped clay in the recent times, playing just two days on the surface in the last two years. He has decided to return to the red dirt this season and is more likely to start at the Madrid Masters. Well, the Zaya Sports News at the Sour. Stay tuned to Channel Africa for more news from an African perspective. This is Africa Digest. And that wraps up the first hour of Africa Digest for today. Be sure to join us again a little bit later on in the evening from 1900 hours right here on Channel Africa. From myself, Samora Mangesi, producer Leander Maume, technical producer Adrian Kenny, and the rest of the Africa Digest team. Thank you so much for listening. For comments on the show, do send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or send us a WhatsApp message to plus two seven seven six three zero zero three three two seven. You can also tweet us at Channel Africa One. Taking us to the top of the hour is Mklaba Wetu by Brenham Dama. We'll see you later.